Uh, after hearing David read Psalm 27, I want to just say you are dismissed because <laughs> it sounds so good. Um, I, I do. Uh, the other night I was talking with some friends and they found out I was preaching and they, they said they were taking bets on are you preaching a psalm? Apparently, I have a reputation for preaching the psalms. Um, I don't mind that reputation. Interestingly, little fact only half of the times I've preached here have I ever preached a psalm. So, But it's no secret I'm ashamed of the fact I love the psalms. When I was a little kid, I loved the psalms. I loved Salty, the singing songbook, for some of you who remember that. Uh, we, we have the, the hymn book of the Bible is the psalms. And as a music leader, I love the psalms. I am unashamed. I love the psalms more and more every day. Throughout the last seven months, as we've been under quarantines and all these other things, the Psalms have been more and more precious. Why? Because the Psalms are practical. The Psalms, they're, they're based on experience. They're, they're not just men writing theoretically, but they come from the hearts of David and men who are after God's own heart. Whoever the psalmist is as they're writing, he doesn't often pretend like he's not something that he is. He's, he's honest. They, they always tell us about their fears, their forebodings. I think that's why so many of us are drawn to the Psalms. Uh, I know that's why I am. They just feel real. It's, it gives expression to my own heart, and we can see so much of ourselves in the psalmists, every one of them. Psalm 27, as David read for us tonight, is probably one of the best known, most comforting psalms. There's been lots of songs based off of it, many hymns, but there's a dilemma among many psalm scholars. Is this one psalm or is this two psalms? Um, We're not going to get into that debate tonight because it's a pointless debate um, for, for our purposes. But the question is, is it a psalm of confidence? It's kind of against this dark background of David and his, his enemies and his foes. Or is it a psalm of lament? Uh, where David just is crying out against his relentless foes. I don't see why it can't be both. Uh, What we do know, what I know is, and what I absolutely love about Psalm 27 is throughout all of it, it's a confident psalm. And it drives our own confidence. It's not desperate, but David is acutely aware that he is in danger and that he needs God's presence and guidance to weather whatever storm he's going through. But where does his confidence come from? What spurs it on? What drives David's confidence? If you want a particular verse that you can take away today, if you remember nothing else today, cling to verse 4 of Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Like all the psalm writers, we deal with problems, with trials, with discouragements, with struggles, with hurts, with doubts, and the psalm writers never minimize their problems to try and gloss over them. The Christian life is hard. We, we all know that. No one comes to the Lord and has all their problems removed. And anyone who tries to tell you otherwise is selling you something and it's not the true gospel. Run away. If they tell you your problems are all going to go away, it's probably a cult. 
Because we know that that's not the case. In fact, we're promised in this life there won't be ease and comfort. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart for I have overcome the world. If you've noticed a theme today, David and I didn't get together. He preached on stop worrying this morning. I'm preaching on stop fearing. They're kind of one and the same thing. Paul wrote in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As if we should be anticipating all these things in our life and in our walk. No, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And while Pastor David so poignantly, poignantly admonished us this morning to stop worrying from the Sermon on the Mount, I want to continue almost in part two and say stop fearing. I should change my sermon title to stop fearing to match his. There's a lot we don't know about what's going to happen in the next couple weeks. With a contentious election, with chaos in the streets, a virus striking fear in our society, and that's just on the national and global scale. But I know that there's a myriad of other things going on in your own hearts and in your own lives and in your own homes. Things that strike much closer to home, work, family, finances, relationship, health. But in spite of the threats to his own life, David is going to show us how to establish an unshakable confidence in the Lord. Praying for help and comfort in his time of need and rejoicing in the hope of waiting on the Lord. And we're going to find in this psalm this evening four strategies to developing a fearless trust and confidence in the Lord. I think we all need a little lesson in courage these days. So David's first strategy to develop a fearless trust is declaring a confidence in the Lord. It's kind of this I declare moment at the very beginning, but not as kind of our world says, I declare. In fact, in 2013, Joel Osteen published his number one New York Times bestseller, I Declare, 31 Promises to Speak Over Your Life. It's narcissistic, it's self-serving, it's delusional, and it puts God in a place of serving me and my self-interest and an easy, comfortable life. Unfortunately, I put a joke out online a couple weeks ago because there's apparently this, well, not apparently, there's the Joel Osteen Inspiration Cube that you can get. And I said, oh, that would be a funny gift for Pastor Appreciation Month. Be careful what you put online because I got one. Um, <laughs> but day 16, I got I declare statements as my personal affirmation for the day. Listen to this. I declare that I will live as a healer. I am sensitive to the needs of those around me. I feel like I should be doing this in that southern accent, but I won't. I am sensitive to the needs of those around me. I will lift the fallen, restore the broken, and encourage the discouraged. I am full of compassion and kindness. I won't just look for a miracle. I will become someone's miracle by showing God's love and mercy everywhere I go. This is my declaration. This sounds like somebody putting themselves in the place of God. This is not the kind of declaration going on in Psalm 27. The psalmist is not finding confidence in and of himself, and neither should we. 
David begins Psalm 27 with the declaration of who God is. He doesn't even begin with his own problem. He begins with God. He establishes it. He doesn't even talk about himself. He establishes God. He says, how much more wonderful our perspective when we begin with the Lord. When we look to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the great I am, when he is the center of our trust rather than ourselves because we are weak and frail. All our hopes, all our convictions, all our reliance should be upon the God of Scripture, not ourselves. David begins with an expression of confidence, but it's also a great expression of praise. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Just a little interesting, fun little side note. This is, uh, I, that I found in, in the commentaries I was reading, this is the only time that the Lord is actually called light in the entire Old Testament. There are times when... Um, well, well, it's a direct reference to God as light. Psalm 18, it says, The Lord my God lightens my darkness, but it doesn't make him the light. Psalm 104, he covers himself as light with, uh, or with light as a garment. In Isaiah 10 and Isaiah 60, he speaks of the coming light. Of course, though, in the New Testament, Jesus is what? He is the light. He is the light. But here in Psalm 27 is that one occurrence where we have David saying, the Lord is my light. Why is this significant? Because light signifies joy, signifies life, the perfection of holiness, the illumination of truth, providing knowledge and understanding. Light banishes darkness. It dispels fear. A number of years ago, I was at Disneyland with some friends of mine from seminary, and we got our fast passes for Space Mountain. And when the time came, we made our way over there, got straight to the front of the line. We were very pleased with our spot. We got in our little spaceship, and if you've been to Space Mountain, you know what it's like. You, you start that incline, and as you begin that little crest over the top, you, you get that anticipation uh, to go into utter darkness, one thing that has always kind of intimidated me about Space Mountain, and I know others, is can you really put your hands up? <laughs> right? You wonder. Are they going to get whacked off by a beam? You just don't know. How much space is there between because I can't see because why? I'm in the dark. Well, we were climbing that, that crest, and we came over, and I've been on Space Mountain enough times to know the routine, and we hit that top there, and the ride stopped. I went, okay, this isn't normal. And we waited about 10 or 15 seconds, and all of a sudden, the lights came on. And all my childhood dreams were ruined. Um, no. <laughs> but, no. But you know what vanished? My fear of raising my hands. When I saw the light fill that gigantic cavern, I recognized that Pastor David could probably stand up with his hands up in the air and never come anywhere close to hitting any, well, I don't advise standing in a, <laughs> in a roller coaster. I knew beforehand going into that, Disney is not going to set themselves up to, for a lawsuit with somebody losing a hand from raising their hands. But I still had fear. But what did the light do? It caused me to not fear anymore because I had seen the truth. The, the light banished my fear. 
In the beginning was darkness. And creation, and creation began with God saying, let there be light. Light is always understood in that contrasting uh, parallel to darkness. And why is light necessary? Because darkness is often associated with what? It, disorder, confusion, chaos, despair, evil. Wicked deeds are done in the dark. But what does the light do? It exposes them. You don't have to turn here, but Job 38, God says to Job, he says, have, I, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. Wickedness has the light actually withheld from it. The same metaphor of light is used in Micah 7 in a context that describes how the enemies will be put to shame as the Lord brings his people into the light, meaning a joyous victory. The great Charles Spurgeon wrote into the soul at the new birth, divine light is poured as the precursor of salvation. Where there's not enough light to see our own darkness and to long for the Lord Jesus, there is no evidence of salvation. But salvation finds us in the dark. But it does not leave us there. It gives light to those who sit in the valley of the shadow of death. There's that relationship of illumination from the light to our salvation. There's a need of light breaking into our darkness if we are to be saved. In fact, I mean, today is Reformation Sunday, although we're going to celebrate it next week, as I've said before. The whole premise of the, of, the, of the Reformation was this phrase called after darkness, light, post-tenebrous lux. The Lord doesn't just merely give light, though. It says here that he is the light. He doesn't merely give salvation. He himself is our salvation. That is why David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Again, quoting Spurgeon, every light is not the sun, but the sun is the father of all lights. This being made sure is a fact. The argument drawn from it is put in the form of a question, whom shall I fear? A question which is its own answer. The powers of darkness are not to be feared, for the Lord our light destroys them, and the damnation of hell is not to be dreaded by us, for the Lord is our salvation. Of course, when the Lord is our light to guide, our salvation to deliver, and our stronghold in whom we take refuge, as the psalmist says, what have I to fear? David isn't even phased by the evildoers who come to devour his flesh. He almost shrugs them off. In, in, in the following two verses, he, he knows the enemy will not prevail even though it looks like they're advancing. Their purpose was to annihilate him. It says to eat up my flesh. This graphic way of referring to their slander and their accusations, you've probably felt that feeling. When someone's out for your destruction, is relentless, is tearing you down, you say that it just eats away at you. 
But what is David's response? He kind of shrugs his shoulders and goes, <laughs> it's they who are going to stumble and fall. He, he doesn't even allow himself to be disturbed. He is so just rock solid in his stronghold. Why? Because the Lord has been his help in ages past and most assuredly will be in years to come. Even if war, to, war were to rise, even if then he would be completely confident. It says literally, in this I trust. David's fearless trust, he begins with that confident, that de- declaring his confidence in the Lord. But the second strategy that he has is desiring the presence of the Lord in verses 4 through 6. We all have a desirable place that we like to be. Um, what's your most desirable place? Is it a tropical island? Is it the Canadian Rockies? Because they're the most majestic place in the entire world. <laughs> but I'm not biased. Is it on your couch with a book? Is it at the Thanksgiving table? Is it at Disneyland, which has been shut down forever and a day? What's the most desirable place for you to be on the planet? Where does your heart long to be? Where do you long to go? There's one place David desires to be above anywhere else on this earth. Think of it. Even though armies are encamped and wars rise against him, it's not behind a walled fortress. He's not saying, put a wall around me. His desire is to be where? In the sanctuary to be in the tabernacle, to be where he can behold the glorious Lord and find a place of safety and a chance to worship. He's not looking to escape his reality. He's not looking to become a hermit. He has a singular purpose in all his life. One thing I ask He finds the best answer to distracting fears is to behold and to inquire. He has this preoccupation with God's person and God's will. He's one thing I ask. His priority is all within that purpose is the essence of worship. It's to be discipled by the Lord and all that comes with that. This sounds even a little bit like Psalm 23, which ends with David saying he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The difference here, though, with Psalm 23 to Psalm 27 is in Psalm 23, when he says he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, he's talking about heaven. That's not the case here. In this psalm, the reference is to the earthly tabernacle, the physical location here on earth where God's people gather to worship. Much like we're doing tonight, he uses every part of the Hebrew language that he can use to describe it so that we are not mistaken. He calls it the house of the Lord, his temple, the shelter, his dwelling, his tent, his tabernacle. This is his singular desire. It's not to be anywhere else. (laughs) I want to say something. I might get in trouble for this by some of you. Actually, no, I'm preaching to the choir here, so I don't think I'm going to. But I want to say something that Pastor Steve says often, but it bears repeating. You know, like when parents, you know, 
you say something to your kids, but the teacher says it, and all of a sudden they listen, and you've been saying it for years. This is the Lord's day. It's not the Lord's Sunday morning or an hour. Sunday is the Lord's day. I remember when I first arrived in Bakersfield a little over six years ago, you couldn't keep the doors closed on this building. If the doors were open, people were here. It didn't matter what was going on. People showed up. It didn't matter if it was a children's event, if it was a church cleaning day, if it was a spoken word rap concert that happened in my first week when I was here. And our senior citizens, who are great connoisseurs of that genre of music, showed up. Why? Because they just can't get enough spoken word and rap. No, 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 no. Why did they show up? It's not because it's their preference. It's because they loved the church. They wanted to be where the church was gathered. They wanted to support the ministries of the church. They wanted to be there. They wanted to be a part of what the Lord was doing. They wanted to be in, they wanted to dwell with God's people in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty in all its different facets. And then you had Friday night when we used to have BTI. Even if people weren't enrolled in BTI, they showed up. Sunday morning and Sunday evening, the, Lord was, the Lord's day was fully given to the Lord. And then afterwards, nobody went home. And you guys still don't go home. Um, but I felt like we would always, the DeWars stock went up that time too because people just went out and continued the fellowship after we closed these doors. People couldn't get enough about being here. They had to be here. But when did that mentality flip? Something's changed, and I don't know what it is, but something has changed. There's been a mentality flip, but like I said, I'm preaching to the choir here. I'm grateful that you guys are here. You have made this the Lord's day, and you do show up. But in February of this past year, our leadership team actually began to earnestly talk about this. Interestingly enough, though, just a few weeks later in March, as you know, all of it was taken away from us. And for several weeks and months, we were starved of fellowship. Some of you have said those were some of the worst weeks of your life because it was so difficult to be away from your church. We all echoed the psalmist's plea during that time. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I think we understood that in a new, fresh way. But David goes on. It wasn't simply enough to be in the house of the Lord. The whole purpose of being there was what? It says to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Wayne Grudem talks about God's beauty as the attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. He says this attribute of God, the beauty of God, is especially related to God's perfection. However, God's perfection was defined in such a way as to show that he does not lack anything that would be desirable for him. This attribute, 
beauty is defined in a positive way to show that God actually does possess all desirable qualities. Perfection means that God does not lack anything desirable. Beauty means that God has everything desirable. They are two different ways of affirming the same truth. David wants to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Why? Because God embodies everything that is desirable to him and everything that should be desirable to us. So gathering with the body of Christ is more than the joy of fellowship with the body of Christ. We come to gaze, to see the beauty of Christ when we are in his house. We can't gaze on anything else or set our sights on anything more lovely than him. We've all heard the expression that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but there's an undeniable beauty in the Lord that no one can deny. Our hymn of the month a couple months ago, Gaze on the Christ, our sacrifice, an altar made of wood. Behold the Lamb, the worthy Lamb who bought us with his blood. That's what we gaze upon. But I think a verse that's more poignant that demonstrates this gazing beauty is from the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It says, The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my King of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Want to know how to get rid of fear? Come to the house of the Lord. Find safety in the house of the Lord. Gaze upon his beauty. Meditate on him day and night with the people of God. And as the old hymn says, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Why does it... Why does that happen? Why do the things of the world grow dim? David's clear, for he, God Almighty, will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. We have this picture of like a mother bird hides her young under her wings. What harm can come when he conceals you under the cover of his tent? This is the tabernacle. Remember the tabernacle. Remember that no one dared to enter into the holy place of the tabernacle under pain of death. David's saying, hide me in there. Because if the Lord has hidden his people in there, what possible calamity can come in? The Lord has hidden me in his shelter in the day of trouble. But of course, we can't live in this building I mean, sometimes we who work here feel like we do, but we can't live in this building all the days of our life. We have to go out into the world, but you don't need to reserve your praise for Sunday. I hope you don't. I hope you're making those connections throughout the week. I hope that you're singing the songs of praise throughout the week. I hope holy, holy, holy rings in your house throughout the week in your car. Do the songs that you sing remind you of the holiness of God in your home? You must have that 
in your home. It's what keeps the connection with your life and the body of Christ. It's those reminders day in and day out, like David says in verse 6, and now my head shall be lifted up because of this, above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. This is his great desire. If God grants the psalmist one request to dwell in the house of the Lord, then he will triumph over his enemies. He is confident of that. And as he anticipates that victory, he's resolved to offer sacrifices of praise. It's going to be accompanied by singing and making music. It's going to be a celebration. If you want to be fearless and courageous in this crazy world we live in, live your life in the church. If you're nervous about the upcoming election, look to the King of Kings. If you're nervous and anxious about a virus, meditate upon the great physician, the one who made your body and formed you in your mother's womb. Are you distraught about your financial circumstances? Sing for joy to the one who's provided all you need for life and godliness. Your hope in life and in death. Not just your hope on Sunday. But why is it your desire to be in the house of the Lord all the days of your life? Or but is it your desire to be in the house of the Lord all the days of your life? Have you taken that spiritual inventory, that evaluation? Why are you here? David develops his fearless trust by beginning with his confident declaration in the Lord. He desires the presence of the Lord. And his third strategy to develop this fearless trust is a deepening dependence upon the Lord. Verse 7 through 13 are, are where we have this split in the psalm. It's this departure from where David has been. And, and many debate whether David even wrote the first six verses separately from these. Because the first six verses are this unwavering confidence. They, they are praise. But these next seven verses, they, they're a lament. The pendulum completely swings. In the previous verse, David's voice was tuned to music. But now it's tuned to crying. So many of the Psalms, when we read them, what we see is they start with lament and go to praise. This one is the reverse order. But because of his confidence in the Lord, David is able to offer a bold prayer of help and guidance in his time of need. He's able to pray a prayer for the Lord's continuous presence. He begins with this general petition for God to hear his voice when he calls, to be gracious, to answer me. He's bold and confident as he seeks God's face. To seek God's face is to petition the Lord directly. But it's most often found in the context of our worship. We we seek this in or we see this in 2 Chronicles 11:16. Where it says, And those who had set their hearts to seek the Lord God of Israel came after them from all the tribes of Israel to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord, the God of their fathers. When we gather to worship, we come to seek his face. Something you can't do casually. It requires and involves a complete devotion. And it's something that the Lord does require. The translation here is a little awkward, though. So it's so a track with me. When, when the words seek my face are written there, it says, um, 
These are the words of God. And as one commentator lays it out, and the psalmist has taken them and he's laid them before God to, to make his appeal more irresistible. It's as if he said, you, you told me seek my face. My heart takes them and then responds, I seek your face. So it's this, you told me, so I'm going to do it. Uh, but notice the important thing is the promptness of it, of David's response. No sooner does God say it, then it is done by David. As soon as God says, seek my face, he responds, your face do I seek. He's ready for it. David was anticipating it. He's ready for it. We should all be so quick to respond. His heart is in tune with God's, and so David is prompt. He's all in. He's unreserved. There is no plan B. His dependence is completely unwavering. Why? Because David is looking for the Lord's intervention in whatever this situation he has found himself in. Remember in the first half of the psalm how, how you get the sense that he's longing for the presence of the Lord in verse 4 so that he'd find favor and protection. Verse 9 begins to spell out a little bit what's going on. David's seeking the Lord's face and then he says, don't hide it from me. We have for the last number of months had faces hidden from us. It's not pleasant. It's discouraging. It's, it, we don't like to not see faces. What does it do? It creates suspicion. It creates distrust. I mean, I'm looking over my shoulder at Costco. I've never done that before in my life. The idea of God hiding his face is terrifying. David recognizes that what it would mean that he'd be refused the Lord's blessing and favor in anger. He says, oh, you who have been my help. He's reminding God that he's been his help in the past and that there is no other option for him. Don't hide your face from me. David is leaning so hard on the Lord because that's all he's got left. If the Lord were to budge a millimeter David would topple over immediately. You can almost hear David singing, What have I to dread? What have I to, do, to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near. Leaning on the everlasting arms. He's saying, Lord, don't abandon me. I've got nothing else. If you abandon me now, I'd be on my own and that would be my destruction. There'd be no light. There'd be no protection. There'd be no stronghold. He's pleading with the Lord. You can hear the desperation in his voice. Do you lean that hard on the Lord? That if he were to budge, you would fall flat on your face. The sad thing to consider is that there are those who live in this reality every day. You want to know why chaos is reigning in the streets? It's because there is no light. There's no protection for them. But we as redeemed saints, as Spurgeon says, should be in horror at the hell of sinners. But the Lord is our salvation. 
Last year at our Steadfast Bible Conference, I was talking with Keith and Kristen Getty about how meaningful their hymn, The Lord is My Salvation, was to my dad and I and really my whole family through the time my mom was in hospice care. And that hymn, Kristen explained to me, was born out of her own time studying this very Psalm 27. You hear these words, The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from a raging sea, and I am safe on this solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. There's that theme of him being the stronghold. Continues on, I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my salvation. With that dawning sun, that rising sun, sun, there's the theme that the Lord is my light and my salvation. The chorus, however, brings us to that desperate plea of David before the Lord. Who is like the Lord our God? Strong to save, faithful in love. And then with confidence he says, my debt is paid, the victory won, the Lord is my salvation. When you get there, all you have to say is, whom shall I fear? What have I to fear? But David continues in his prayer for the Lord's guidance in dealing with these malicious false witnesses that are also coming after him. The, the assault doesn't stop. In verse 11 and 12, he's simply looking for guidance on account of his enemies. They are constantly trying to find something against him. Spurgeon so eloquently said, Slander is an old-fashioned weapon out of the armory of hell. And it is still in plentiful use. And no matter how holy a man may be, there will be some who will defame him. Give a dog an ill name and hang him. But glory be to God, the Lord's people are not dogs. And their ill names do not injure them. He continues in his subtle ways, Spurgeon. It is their vital breath to hate the good. They cannot speak without cursing them. Such was Paul before conversion. They who breathe out cruelty may well expect to be sent to breathe their native air in hell. Let persecutors beware. David is so confident, even in his lament, that the Lord is going to take care of him. And he's going to take care of those who are ruining his name. They're threatening to knock him off. And he, all he needs is God's protection. David's asking the Lord to keep him on the straight path that leads to life, to not be distracted by these others that are around, that are threatening to kill him. All he needs is God's protection. Look, David is not afraid of his enemies. He never says in this that he is even remotely afraid of his enemies. David is so focused on the Lord, he is just making sure that he's put all his eggs in the right basket. He's, he's basically holding God responsible for whatever happens. The enemy is coming to kill him, but he's not afraid of the enemy. He's fearless with them. He's trusting the Lord. And his prayer is confident that there is the Lord's blessing coming his way. David is abundantly confident that, he is, that help is coming in verse 13. 
Some of your translations have different variations of this 13th verse because there's some variance in just even the Hebrew, what is available. The translators supply some words in italics in an attempt to represent what might have been included in the unspoken thought of the psalmist because the sentence really is actually incomplete in our Hebrew. The ESV writes, I believe I shall look on the goodness of the Lord. And then it has that little footnote that you can see. Oh, had I not believed that I would look. Um, The NASB has an italicized beginning that says, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. And then it also has a footnote adding, or surely I believed. Know this, when it comes to these kind of issues, you can trust your Bible We don't need to get into all the semantics of of how Bible translation works, but this discrepancy among manuscripts doesn't alter any meaning or authority of this verse. What we do know is that the psalmist is affirming his confidence in the Lord. He will see the good things of the Lord in the land of the living, which is in contrast to what? The place of death, the realm of death, Sheol. David doesn't fear. Instead, he's so confident that he will see and experience God's blessing in this life as the days of his life that were mentioned in verse 4 that when he comes to the Lord, he knows the Lord will help him. Like the final verse of Kristen's hymn, The Lord is My Salvation, says, When I reach my final day, he will not leave me in the grave. But I will rise. He will call me home, for the Lord is my salvation. David's fearless trust begins by declaring his incredible confidence. And then he desires the presence of the Lord. But he deepens his dependence on the Lord in times of trial. And then in this final section, his final strategy is another declaration that he will wait on the Lord. He will declare his patience in the Lord. David finds encouragement in waiting patiently for the Lord. I love this example from James Montgomery Boyce. He, He sums it up well. He says, If some wealthy person promised to give you an expensive gift, wouldn't you wait for it expectantly? If you were in trouble and a king were coming to your aid, wouldn't you be alert for his appearance? God is such a generous benefactor and powerful king. He is well worth waiting for. In fact, it is a privilege to wait for him. Rather than taking matters into his own hands like we so often do, rather than forcing his way, rather than determining our own plans as best, we as the people of God should wait patiently for the Lord's response. This doesn't mean we take a laissez-faire approach to life. Pastor David talked about that this morning. But we wait on the Lord with prayer. We wait at his door. We wait at his feet with humility. We wait at his table with service. We wait at his window with expectancy. We wait, we wait, and we look. 
He implores us in our, in our waiting, David does, to be strong and take courage. We are familiar with these words. We've, we've heard them several times in, in the scriptures. They're reminders when Moses said them to Israel, passing the leadership mantle on to Joshua. David says them to his son Solomon when he was charged to build the temple. Be strong, be of good courage, be of good courage. This is a soldier's motto. And it should be ours. We have no need to fear. We can be relentless in our trust. Not in man. Not in a virus. Not all the powers of hell do we need to fear. Let your heart take courage. If you need more examples of those who were strong and courageous, the scriptures are full of them. Church history is full of them. Fox's Book of Martyrs is a wonderful place to go and look for those who were strong and courageous in the midst of trial. Read stories of courageous missionaries. I just looked this week on the Voice of the Martyrs website. And just this past week, there was a story posted. It says this, A brew community in rural Laos, Laos, was determined to drive out a group of Christian families that they resorted to drastic measures. This is just this week. They were so resistant to their faith that they were trying to scare them out of the village or to renounce their faith. A voice of the martyrs field worker said, persecution began in 2018 when the villagers killed the livestock and crops of all three families. They even planted a bomb in their cooking fire, hoping to scare or injure them. The Christian families are also banned from using the village well. Even so, the believers are determined to stay in their village as a testimony to God's power. That's courage. That's courage. Those are people waiting on the Lord and taking courage. So when faced with false accusations, the faithful will find the sanctuary of the Lord as the place to strengthen their faith and to seek with a confident expectation God's divine protection and his guidance. I said at the beginning, there's one verse that's the key to the whole understanding of fearlessness. It's verse 4. It's one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The psalmist doesn't desire to go just anywhere. He desires to be in the sanctuary with the people of God. It's not an empty space that he wants to go to. It can be a place of safety and encouragement, the sanctuary of God, if it is evident that the Lord is present. How does that make itself known? That will only happen if the people are there praising the Lord for his wonderful works and encouraging one another to pray with confident expectation. The message of this psalm will not work if the sanctuary of God is empty and the people are silent. Because it's technically Reformation Sunday, David got in his one Martin Luther quote, and I'm going to get mine in as a final conclusion as well. Faith is a living, 
daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and so certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. I'll say that again. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? No one. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer as we sung earlier, our light, our salvation, our stronghold, the one who hides us in the rock, who covers us in his tent, the one whom if you hid your face from us, all would fall apart. We live in a crazy world. And that is nothing new to you. Kingdoms have come and kingdoms have gone and calamity has struck and empires have risen and fallen. Chaos has reigned in ways we can't even fathom in this day and age. We see evil all around us and we wonder what is going on? And we feel assaulted on every side. But we have a great confidence. We have a great God in heaven who loves us. A great God who has all perfection and beauty to gaze upon. Whom shall we fear if we have you in heaven on our side? May we be bold and confident in all we do this week as we live our life in the body of Christ, even as we go from this place, may we, like David, echo in our hearts that one thing we desire, one thing we ask is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life and to gaze upon your beauty, Lord, and to inquire in your temple. If that isn't our heart's cry, we pray that you would make it our heart's cry that you would lighten and illuminate those dark recesses of our heart that need your illumination so that all we desire, we find in you. May this be our prayer tonight and through the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.